Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to cerseinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Well, before we do, I should clarify something. We're going to the uh, official sort of Ask Andrew format that goes when we're not dealing with the coronavirus. So there's going to be one main question and then one second question. And the second question is a one-minute question. And the main question really is a 15-minute question. All right. So your question is, you say often that rhetoric teaches us how to read. How is this? How does rhetoric teach us how to read? How does rhetoric teach us how to read? Well, okay. Off the top of my head, I can think of four uh, considerations and then a series of applications. So let me look at my notes that I haven't written yet and tell you those four considerations. Actually, that. The, the normal pattern for Ask Andrew is that I do get questions ahead of time and think about them. So I'm, I, I have thought about this question. So the, the, I'm going to look at this, uh, a four-part answer, five-part answer. The first part of the answer is going to be how to relate, given what rhetoric is, the definition of rhetoric, how does it teach us how to read? Second, purpose, the purpose of rhetoric. Given the purpose of rhetoric, how does it teach us how to read? Third, the parts of rhetoric. Given the parts of rhetoric, how does rhetoric teach us how to read? And then fourth, the place of rhetoric. Given its place, how does it teach us how to read? And then fifth, applications. Now, I'll tell you right now, my, my, my guess, my estimation is that I'm probably going to have to put the applications off to next week. But I'm going to talk, I'm going to try to get through all five, but I'm going to talk about the definition, the purpose, the parts, and place of rhetoric, not so you get to listen to them again, but to make a connection to the act of reading, okay? So let's talk first about the definition of rhetoric. Now, you, you, you've, some of you have sat in enough Ask Andrews to know what's coming here. The definition of rhetoric, I believe, 
is the art of decision-making in community. If you want to look more deeply at that and you haven't heard that de definition before, please feel free to review any Ask Andrews, visit our blog, anything like that. But rhetoric, as I believe, is the art of decision-making in community. All right. So how does that have anything to do with reading? Well, put it this way. If you orient your instruction to your children toward making decisions together in a community, one thing you have to learn how to do is listen attentively. And there is really probably nothing else more important to the act of reading than listening attentively. One of my favorite ideas about reading, and I'll probably pick this up in the next one, I will in fact, but I'll just say it right now, is that reading a book, the book that you're reading teaches you how to read. You, you will learn how to read the way a given book teaches you how to read. This is one of my arguments against textbooks. This is one of my arguments against subjects. So I'll just leave it at that for now, that if decision-making in community is, as I believe, what rhetoric is, then attentive listening is absolutely crucial to the act of decision-making. And if you orient your teaching of a book toward making a decision in community, then you will have to listen to the book, not only to the other people in the room, but you'll have to listen, okay? And that means that you'll have to teach them how to listen, how to perceive, how to hear what the book is saying. All right, the second thing then is the purpose of rhetoric. We've talked about the purpose of rhetoric a few times in Ask Andrew. And if, if, if the definition of rhetoric is decision-making in community, why, why is that important, making decisions in community? Well, because it's the only way to attain harmony. Right? It, it, it's the purpose of rhetoric is harmony. And I hate to say this, but as we're meeting tonight, this is not something our country is experiencing. We are going through a time of tremendous polarization and discord as a country. And my contention is, in part at least, it's because we haven't learned how to do rhetoric as rhetoric, as a liberal art. We've learned how to use, how to use a degraded form of rhetoric to assert our will on other people, but we certainly haven't learned how to make decisions together in community in a way that brings harmony to the community. Right. And so if harmony, if, 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 if decision making requires attentive listening, what does harmony require? Well, it requires a, a number of things, but, but I, I thought of two in particular I think I want to mention now, and that is one, receptivity, and two, humility. Right. When you come to a text to lord it over the text, which is frankly what you learn how to do in school. Right. We go to school to learn how to lord it over a text for the most part. Or, or, or have the text lorded over us, I suppose. But it's a question of it's a it's a question not of mastery of any art, but who's the who's your daddy, right? To use the phrase from a decade ago. That's what that's what you go to school to find out, who's your daddy. And it's it's just a realm of of very subtle politics all the time. It's not a realm where you learn to be receptive and humble. But if you're teaching rhetoric 
to a student, if you're approaching them to attack, attack, to approach a text as a means to make decisions in community so that that community can have harmony, then you approach the book with humility, reverence, really, like you should another person. Humility, reverence, and receptivity. And this is where I come back to the point I just made on the last point question, or I mean, uh, you know, point one about the definition, which is that a book teaches you how to read it if you are receptive to it. This is why I believe the Bible is the greatest book ever. No, this isn't why. This is one of the great benefits of the Bible, is that if you learn how to read the Bible, you've learned how to read anything. You've learned how to read your own soul. You've, you've learned how to read friends. But if you go to the Bible with your, um, what you've already been taught and you go into the Bible and impose that on the Bible, first of all, you're committing an act of violence against the word of God, which really needs to be um, repented of. But second of all, all the benefit that you would be gaining, how to learning how to read it, you're not getting. And if you can read something as high as the Bible, as lofty, as, as weighty, as glorious as the Bible, you can read anything. I mean, honestly, if you, can, if you can read the Bible with a receptive and a humble attitude, you can read anything. As I say, including yourself and your, and your friends. And so, so rhetoric teaches us how to um, read by teaching us receptivity and humility. Third, the parts of rhetoric. When we look at the parts of rhetoric, we can see very practically at this point how rhetoric teaches us how to read. Why? Because there's five parts of rhetoric, at least in the classical tradition, which is what I'm very deeply committed to. The classical tradition is five parts. They are invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, and delivery. Don't, don't feel like you have to write it all down. I'm just giving you an outline at this point. But they're invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, and delivery. Now think about this in relation to reading. What's invention? Another word for it is discovery. What does it include? Topics of invention. What are the topics of invention? Questions that you ask when you read. Questions that you ask when you investigate. Questions that you ask whether you are doing science or history or literature or ethics. I don't care what you're studying. These are the universal questions that human beings ask, these topics of invention. And that's the most fundamental thing you need to learn how to read. Questions. If you are given questions like the, the uh, Oblonsky, what is to be done, right? Okay, if you've got the what is to be done question, you're gonna read better. But if you also have the comparison question ready to use, not suppressed because you need to pass a test, but ready to use because you wanna think, or the definition question, what is that thing? What kind of thing is it? When you can ask that question freely, you're learning how to read. Or the circumstance question, what's going on in this story right now? And I, I don't have time to go on. I'll just leave it at that, though, that, that the invention teaches you the most practical tools of reading that you can learn. And if you don't learn those practical tools, you'll never be, in my opinion, you'll never be a master reader. Now, happily, those questions are woven into your soul, but that's a, I'll leave that for now. Arrangement. Even arrangement helps us learn how to read. How? 
because arrangement applies careful thought to what I think the text means and how I want to talk about it. But because I'm being careful and I'm putting it in a sequence, listen carefully now, I am analyzing my own responses to the reading. Do you see? Self-analysis. Arrangement, which is a tool of rhetoric, enables me to analyze my own response to the text that I'm reading. It enables me to have a discussion with a group of people about what I'm reading in an orderly, disciplined way that respects everybody in the room. Arrangement does that. Third, elocution. Wow. Elocution does so much to help us read. For one thing, when you're learning elocution, which is the art of expression, one of the things you're doing is learning to imitate. In fact, one of the very best things you can do that you might not like this because it's so simple, but one of the very best things you can do if you want to become a good writer is copy work. Have your child or yourself simply pick up Homer, pick up Ernest Hemingway, pick up Steinbeck, and just literally word for word copy what they wrote. Take five minutes doing that every day. Do you know Stein? I think it was Steinbeck. It might have been Hemingway. It was one of those early 20th century authors. Every single day, I can't remember exactly what they did, but I think it was every single, I know for sure it involved reading the King James Bible. I think they actually spent time every single day through life copying the King James Bible for five minutes. Forgive me, I cannot remember who it was. You don't have to trust me one bit. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to come up with some way of backing up my opinion that it's a good idea, and I can't remember, so forget it. Okay, just, you'll have to just either trust me or not, but I can't authorize that. I can't find an authority. But we imitate, and when we imitate, we learn to appreciate. You see? You, you try to write a passage like Shakespeare sometime. Try to write like that. One of my favorite questions in a, in a writing workshop is I'll ask, does anybody here find writing easy? And you'll often get some middle-aged, yeah, I'm not middle-aged, uh, high school kid who goes, oh, yeah, I find it easy. And I'll say, okay, write me a, a, a Shakespearean sonnet right now. And, you know, of course they find it easy. They've never been challenged. Well, imitation makes you appreciate. And you can imitate the very words or you can imitate the forms that the author uses. You can imitate the thought process that they use. Using forms, and please understand this, using forms helps us understand what forms are for. If you never use them, you don't know what they're for. If you don't imitate the way a master uses them, you don't learn what they're for. And here I mean a form as simple as a simile, alliteration. What are they for? You find out what they're for by using them. And over time, you find that sometimes they work and help you get your point across, and sometimes they don't. And so what are they for? What, what forms are for? But there's something more. There's something kind of magical that comes when you imitate forms. They make us, in a strange kind of way, sympathetic to the author and understanding. And I really want to make a distinction here. In school, we typically want our kids to understand what the author says, but we don't want them to care about it. When you imitate an author, you better understand what they're saying. You do. I don't mean you had better, but you do. You better understand what they're saying 
but you also sympathize, you have a shared feeling with that author by going through something like, in a very minimal way, what they went through. By walking in their steps, you better understand what they're trying to do. So the act of elocution helps you better not only understand with your mind, but enter into the mind of the author. Fourth, the art of memory, canon of memory. Golly, do I have to defend memory? If you memorize a passage, if you memorize a, a, any, you're going to understand it better, at least if you think about it. I'm not even going to say anything more about that except do it. And then finally, delivery, acting as interpretation. If any of you have ever taught Shakespeare you've prob- or, or any drama- dramatist, you've probably seen the incredible value that comes to a child who has to act out something that a character is doing in a play. As soon as they are trying to imitate an actor who's already given the words, they're now involved in interpreting. And not just interpreting rationally. In other words, they're not just saying, here's what this means, but they're putting it into their hands and their fingers. And so the art of delivery as a rhetorical skill is crucial to reading. And what I want to get at now, because I'm just about out of time, what I want to really emphasize here is that the act of reading is not, please understand, the act of eyes moving across pages. You don't even have to have a book in front of you to read it. Reading is quite literally the art of interpretation, the art of interpreting signs. You have to have looked at a book to read it. But if you're talking about it to another person, you're reading the book. And when you come back to that physical act of moving your eyes across the page again, it will be something new. It will be something richer. We've all experienced that. And so rhetoric is crucial to the act of reading because of invention, arrangement, elocution, memory, and delivery. The last point I'll make, and then, as I said, I didn't think I'd get through all of it, but I want to talk in my last, I guess I have about a minute, about the place of rhetoric. And the thing to emphasize here about the place of rhetoric is that rhetoric as an art basically follows or fulfills grammar and logic. And please understand that grammar, as I'm understanding it in the tradition, is not merely memorizing information, and it's not merely the parts of speech. Grammar is the art of interpreting signs. I suspect you can see how important that is when you read. What is a book if it's not a series of signs that you're trying to interpret? So grammar is the art of interpreting signs. Reading is an act of grammar, but it's fulfilled in rhetoric, where you interact with and communicate the signs. What is logic? It's the form of thought. It's the act of ordering your thoughts, right? And governing them by, by the logos, by rules of reality, so that not only are you interpreting signs, but now you're ordering your own thoughts about the things that those signs are pointing to and better able not just to read a book, not just to understand a book, but to live your life, to interact with your community, right? And so these are deeply important, liberating arts, arts of perception and arts of harmony. So I'm going to end there, but next week, I'm going to pick it up with part five, which is applications. Okay, what does this have to do with how I teach my kids how to read this kind of book and that kind of book. And I will specifically talk about 
modern writings like comedy and tragedy, I'm sorry, like um, romances and crime fiction. We'll talk about that briefly. And then I want to talk about comedy and tragedy. And then I want to talk about epic. And I think in so doing, we'll cover pretty well the whole universe of writing because everything is an extension out of those, those core ideas. All right. So those are, the, that's my, that's my um, brief answer to the question, how does rhetoric relate to reading? I hope there's something practical in there, um, but I'm done now. So now, now I have to ask Katie, what is my one minute question? Can I ask a question myself? Am I allowed to do that? Absolutely not. Cool. All right. I consider that permission. You can you can afterward, but there, but there's a question. There's a question given already. There isn't though, actually. Pardon? There actually isn't a given question. I emailed it to you. We I I, I, I emailed yeah, you the main question and the follow up question. Now this just became a postmodern show where our where our where our veil got removed. And like, yeah. Oh. You said, <laughs> okay, I'm pretty sure you sent me one question. Correct me. Is this meant to be a question? Oh, it is. Yep. This is meant to be a question. I'm sorry. All right. Here's your second question. <laughs> I thought this was an answer. Okay. Okay. Rewind. Everyone pretend that didn't happen. This is where I come in ready with a new question. Here we go. From a person that's not my dad. Why do you blame Ramis for the death of classical education? Because he killed it. Because, okay. One, two, three, four, five. Five reasons. One, because in Peter Ramos, you have a, a metaphysical shift. I'll leave that to those of you who like philosophy, but he's leaving behind, he's leaving behind metaphysical realism, which is, for example, Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, Charlotte Mason, and he's replacing it with nominalism, which is Occam and everything else that ever has been bad in the whole history of the world. Secondly, he redefines every single one of the seven liberal arts. As a result, he reduces every one of them to less than it was. And remember, if, if rhetoric is the art of decision-making in community and the purpose is to attain harmony, we don't have that anymore now under Ramos. Instead, what we have for rhetoric is the art of ornamentation. Okay, so, so he's reduced all seven of the liberal arts, but especially the trivium. So first reason, different metaphysic, which I think is bad. Two, redefines all the arts. Three, reduces all the arts. Four, therefore, he renders them inadequate. They are no longer adequate to the task that we lay upon them. And in time, that leads to them being lost, forgotten, gotten rid of. They are no longer the seven pillars of wisdom. They are now sandcastles that we're supposed to build a whole world on. Finally, because he gave rise to four things that I think are bad. Subjects, textbooks, methods and standardized assessment, which took centuries. But let's just say four really bad ideas that dominate modern education. Subjects instead of arts and sciences. Well, even there, he redefined sciences so that we, we don't know what sciences are anymore. But he redefined, he, he, he had bad metaphysic, he redefi redefined the seven liberal arts, 
reduced the seven liberal arts, rendered the seven liberal arts inadequate and gave rise to, this is the fifth reason, subjects, methods, bad testing, oh, five things, textbooks, and fragmented minds. And so from the 17th century onward, we watch as the disintegration of the Western mind and the and what Western culture proceeds step by step until we get to where we are in the 20th and 21st century. I think the climax of the Ramus movement is John Dewey, and those two would not have one sympathetic word to say to each other, but one leads to the next. Who is Peter Ramus? Okay. I should probably address that briefly. Um, he's the guy who killed classical education. <laughs> in, in the 1500s, he wrote a series of books about education that were very influential in France and England and the Low Countries, strongly influenced Cambridge University, I think the Sorbonne, and and the simplest way to say who he is is he did the stuff that I just described. He, re, he took the seven liberal arts and redefined them. And the seven liberal arts are, were up till this point, the foundations of classical education. And he became extremely influential through people like William Ames, who brought his idea, well, he didn't come to America, but his ideas came to America through the influence of William Ames and, and then the 17th and 18th century of American education are dominated by Ramus thought because of William Ames. Now, happily, they still learned Greek and Latin, and they still read really, really good books like the Bible, for example. And so they overcame the bad principles. They overcame the bad methodologies. And they were able to give us our constitution in spite of that. But nonetheless, the, the poison was injected into the system. That's my contention. Okay. Could the Bible be compared to Christian classical education? Hmm. I would say that Christian classical education is, is a application of the Bible to education. The, the best version I've ever seen, to the ability, to the limit of my capacity to make the assessment, I believe that the Bible lays out principles about human beings, about the goal of life, about what thought is for, that are best fulfilled in a Christian classical education. But it's all groping. And it, you know, you, it depends what, what Christian classical education, which version you're talking about. So I'm, I'm always striving to climb up this Mount Everest and, and tell people keep climbing. In that sense, I think that the Bible gives us the foundations for a Christian classical education. But, you know, you could hear another person say that and they might mean something different from me and another person might disagree with me, but might be disagreeing. Like per person A might say that, person I might say it, and person C might say it, and person D disagrees with the words, but is really disagreeing with person A. That's where it gets complicated. Okay, so... Yeah, mysteries that keep on being revealed, absolutely. Jill Ramus, I think you mean him, R-A-M-U-S. That's his, that's his, the name he's most famous for. Uh, mysteries that keep on, re where am I getting the information? The, uh, the, um, 
Oh, he does. Right. Okay. Here's the thing that's tricky about Ramos. If a 21st century person got a Ramos education, it would be so much better than what we get now. It would be basically classical. But that doesn't change the fact that he's turned us, that he turned us away from the classical roots, the, the principles on which a classical education had been based. Um, the book that I can point you to most easily is written by a, a fan of Ramos and of William Ames. And it's this book, William Ames' Technometry. And in the introduction, you can't read that, can you? In the introduction to this, it's by Lee Gibbs, William Ames' Technometry. In the introduction, he, gives a, a, he writes a, a, a historical introduction and describes how Peter Ramos influenced William Ames, how he interacted with the curriculum and so on. And as I say, this guy's a, a friend of, of that whole movement. He thinks it's wonderful. But he, here's an example. Here's a sentence by the author of this book. Ramus inherited the passion of Renaissance humanism for method, for making the student's goal of mastering the arts easier and quicker, and for putting the arts into practical use in everyday life. I have no idea what Renaissance he's talking about. There, there is no Renaissance I'm familiar with between the, the 11th century, the, the Carolingian Renaissance through the Italian Renaissance that, that had a passion for method. I'm, I'm subject to correction on this, but I know of no period during any of those Renaissances where they had a passion for method. What he's doing is he's reading Ramus back into the Renaissance. Okay, second, making the student's goal of mastering the arts easier and quicker. Okay, everybody wants it to be as easy and quick as possible. Sure, sure. But I think Ramus went way overboard. And then putting the arts into practical use in everyday life. That sure wasn't what the Greeks wanted to do. <laughs> there's, there's benefits, right? That's a subtle point. That's important to us because we're all Ramists. But the classical, the classical liberal arts were not designed for their practical utility. They were designed to know the truth. The assumption being that truth is practical, right? So that's an example of how differently we think compared to how the Christian classical tradition developed. And I think on the Christian side, Moses didn't reveal, sorry, God didn't reveal himself to Moses for practical reasons, right? He revealed himself to Moses so Moses could know him. And then there was a benefit, of course, he could deliver the children of Israel, but it's so we can know him, right? And in, in a similar way, um, Greek mathematicians did not develop math so that they could be physicists and build atomic bombs. That's why they didn't. They weren't interested in power like that. They studied, uh, they studied mathematics so that they could see the beauty of it. That was enough. They saw these things as distinctively human. Not, not you know, beavers are practical. They put up their dam, right? Now, I'm from Wisconsin. so. I get it. I mean, I'm a farmer at heart, even though I have only worked on a farm two or three days in my whole life. But I have that whole, that farming disposition that says this better have some practical utility. But you can't let that replace worship and that you can't let that replace union with God. You can't let that replace perception of truth and beauty, right? That's the problem. And when we, what, what happens, Ramus had better taste than his followers, let's put it that way. But what happens in that tradition is he turns the corner. He turns, he, 
I, I think I said this once that there, if you start out one degree different and you walk for thousands of miles, you end up very far apart, right? So Ramus was very close to the classical educators when he first started walking, but he turned, he turned them off course. And now we can look back and say, wow, that was a big mistake. I don't blame him particularly. He's kind of a symbol for me. But the person, I don't really blame him. He was living in the 16th century. It was an age of chaos. He did the best he could so far as I can tell. But boy, the, the, the things he said were damaging, so damaging. And good people do that. So, um, okay. It's 9.30. Are you stopping at 9.30 or? Yeah, we're officially, officially after the second question is, is, is answered, we're done. I'm going to take a quick look at this chat box because there's some good feedback here. And I want to, if I, if I have a response, but this, this won't be part of the official, you know, the official evening. Where am I getting? Let's see. He does teach one to think more fully. And he does teach you to go back to the roots of where a thought came from. There's no doubt about that. Previous topic, Andrew. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Thank you for, for putting that back up. Speaks of those who came to America. Yep. Yep. Well, to teach more fully and think more thoroughly than, than whom? I mean, I, I respect very much what they achieved. And, and I'm not, it's not like, to me, the world isn't made up of good guys and bad guys. To me, the world is made up of, of complex people who make big mistakes and are moving in various directions, and then their theories follow them. So I don't see Ramos as kind of the black hat. I just think thinking more fully and more thoroughly than us, absolutely than the previous generations, I would, I would question that. Um, these people, for those who experienced this, I could have understood. Well, probably not. Okay, can you please provide some guidance on using homeschool resources? Appreciate the basic structure. Speak to what criteria? Okay, this is a big question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Kate, can you take that question down? And we'll, let's address that question longer. Um, yeah, basically, that's what it's, it's asking about how methodical textbooks, um, um, what criteria to use to judge a, um, a textbook, a curriculum. And I'll just say right now that the one criteria practically that I find easiest to use when I look at a, a program is, can I easily teach this mimetically? Does this support mimetic teaching? If it doesn't, then it's interfering. So that's that's a cheap, easy answer, but that's kind of a yeah. practical one that we can pick up again. So there it is. I really do have to go, though. So thank you very much for for coming back again. Even though you know that we had the we had the um, what do you want to call it the the coronavirus emergency Ask Andrew Live series, and now we're in the post coronavirus rioting non-emergency Ask Andrew Live, right? So we only have to do it once a week, but boy, do we have to pray for our country. So let, let, let's just, if we, if we can, let's take a moment to pray the prayer our Lord taught us to pray. I'll pray it. You can follow along if you like. And then, and then um, just offer a word of prayer up for our country. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, please bring healing to our country. Manifest the name of your beloved son so that we can see your glory in him and so that we can be healed. For you are holy. You are holy now, you always have been, and you will be through the ages of the ages. Amen. All right. Thank you. And may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 